the power of an introduction. I was introduced to Georgia in September 27, 2014 at the Baldsbridge Hotel in Dublin, Ireland. It was not the first time we had been to the Baldbridge Hotel in Dublin. In May of that year, I, along with my twin sister and her husband, Brian Schwartz, and Donna and Denzel, invited by Pastor Mark Finley, were in Dublin at that hotel, helping with pre-work for the evangelistic meetings that Pastor Mark was going to be conducting that summer there in Dublin. In September, my husband and I, and Lindy and Brian and Donna and Denzel, returned to Dublin for the last weekend of meetings and the baptisms that followed that final Sabbath. That Sabbath was September 27, 2014. And after Sabbath school, the six of us, and Teeny and Mark, were standing in a semicircle facing two ladies, Georgia and her mother, Mary Hart. Mark introduced them to us in what I thought was a very intentional way, which struck me. And this I kept in my head. As I remember it, after the introductions, Georgia asked me if she could have my contact information. A thought went through my mind. Of all the friendly faces staring back at her and her mother, why ask me for my contact information? There were six very warm and friendly faces looking back at her, Lindy, Donna, and Teeny. I truly had the least friendly face of them all. The next thought I had was, why did Mark introduce us to them? That Sabbath afternoon, we went to the baptism at a church in Dublin in which several people were baptized from those meetings, but neither Georgia nor her mother were in attendance, and for some reason, I thought they were going to be coming because Pastor Mark indicated that they were really interested. I'm not sure if any of our little group looked around for Georgia and her mother at the baptism, but I did. They were not there, and a strange, deep sadness came over me as I looked around repeatedly for Georgia and her mother. They never showed up. Evening drew on, and the nice church people fed us a very light supper, and after visiting with them into the evening, Pastor Mark led us on a spirited walk back to the hotel about three miles away. Mark, do you remember that? There were eight of us, including Mark and Teeny. On the way back, Mark mentioned that both Georgia and her mother stood up for baptism at one of his meetings. I made a mental note of that fact, and when I got back to the U.S., I decided that I would not waste this introduction and decided to start an email correspondence with Georgia. I may have an unfriendly face compared to some people, but I'm not unfriendly, just contemplative. <laughs> I tend to be a very observational type of person, and I study people. After all, I am a radiologist, and I observe for a living. Mark obviously saw something, and I wanted to be sure that we did not drop the ball. In addition, I had an unexplainable drawing to Georgia. Our, excuse me, our correspondence began on October 10, 2014. 
Remember that we had met on September 27, 2014. And with each email, I tried to encourage, exhort, and share gospel points with her. In preparation for this evening, I went through the 434 emails that went between us between October 10, 2014 and May 2 of 2018, and saw in each email I wrote a desperate pouring out of the gospel for this young woman who I came to love as my own daughter. It was all I knew to do. I was not about to give up on this precious child of God as she struggled and vacillated and had ups and downs and twists and turns. One of my favorite Bible passages is found in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus is speaking. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned, strengthen the brethren. And so I prayed, and Jesus prayed, and God prayed, and the Holy Spirit worked. I do not want to steal any of Georgia's thunder, nor her testimony, but I will say this. I was often reminded of Romans 4, verse 17. God, who gives life to the dead, and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. You know, there is one thing I absolutely love about Mark Finley. He sees people the way that Jesus sees them. And this is something I've learned from Mark in the multiple years, Mark, that I've had the privilege of being your friend. I was also reminded of Zechariah 3, verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Israel, Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And this is how I view Georgia. You know, the Bible says there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and I determined to be that type of friend and mom to Georgia. It is my privilege to introduce to you my precious daughter, Georgia, who by the goodness of, and grace of God is currently a first-year medical student at Loma Linda University Medical School, having finished her pre-medical training at Weimar College, and having successfully and handily passed her first quarter final exams at Lumley University School of Medicine. I am very proud of Georgia. Thank you. Where's my audience? Okay. Hello. Good evening. Please allow me to say one more word of prayer before I launch into this testimony. Kind Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, and praise you for the Sabbath hours that you have set aside for us to come and worship you in. I thank you for this opportunity to share a bit more of my story. And crazy as it is, I just pray at this moment, Lord, that you would soothe my nerves and just help me to say it with clarity that it might encourage someone this evening, whoever is listening. I also thank you, Lord, that you know the heart of each person who is listening at this moment. You know their needs. And I pray at this time that you would hide me behind your cross and that your glory might be shown forth. And I thank you. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
This evening, I was asked to share a bit about my journey to medical school. The story, however, is so intimately interweaved with my story to becoming an Adventist that it's impossible to tell one without the other. So this evening, I realized that I'm going to have to start from the beginning. I was born on the other side of the pond in Rome, Italy, to an Italian father and an Irish mother. My father was an Air Force trained captain for Alitalia, and my mother was a flight attendant. My parents met through work. I came as a result of my father's second marriage. My parents kept me very sheltered. I was their only child and a girl, and I can wholeheartedly say that I was blessed with very loving and devoted parents. Unlike the rest of my more traditional Catholic family, both my parents were definitely on the more nominal end of the spectrum. Um, like most other people that we knew, we would only go to church for the big religious holidays, Christmas and Easter. Um, but religion was never really a subject that was spoken of at home. Though neither of my parents had finished college, they both highly valued education, and this was where they made their most significant sacrifices for me. I was sent to the best schools in Rome, which were international, and followed the English curriculum. My school had a strong bent towards the humanities, arts, music, literature, languages, and these soon became the focus of my education. My parents wanted me to feel like the world was my oyster, so I got to travel extensively with them while they were working, and also when they retired, we continued to travel extensively. From as early as I can remember, I have been living out of a suitcase. As I mentioned, I was raised in a nominally Catholic home, and religion was not a topic taken too seriously. However, like every good little Catholic girl, at seven, I was sent to prepare for my Holy Communion, a day that I was greatly looking forward to, not so much for my commitment to the Lord Jesus, but because of the pretty white frock that I would get to wear. On Sundays before Mass, the children were taken into a separate class to learn our prayers, the Our Fathers, Hail Marys, and so on. And one Sunday, while we were repeating these prayers, um, I kind of looked up and saw all the other children dutifully bowed down, repeating them. And one thought kind of crossed my mind. Isn't one Hail Mary good enough? How many times do we have to repeat it for her to hear? So at the end of the class, uh, being the stubborn little girl that I was, I made my way to the front and asked the priest how I could talk to Jesus directly. I was told, we don't do that because our sin killed him. Therefore, we pray to the Virgin and Saints for intercession instead. We were also taught about confession. Before the day of my first confession, I was given a list of Catholic Ten Commandments to look over, which I did. I didn't think I had broken any. I didn't really understand the word covet and had to have my mom explain that to me. Um, and as I have a tendency of doing, however, I started to overthink it and really wondered what I should tell the priest. So the day of my confession rolled in, and while I was standing in line with my mother, she sensed my anxiety about not knowing what to tell the priest. She looked at me straight in the eyes and said, Georgia, relax, this is just a right, but you don't have to tell the priest anything. In fact, just keep it superficial. In life, it's best to keep some things to yourself. She herself never went to confession, and looking back on it now, I understand where she was coming from. She had been raised by the Irish nuns and priests, 
and didn't have the fondest memories of that. To make a long story short, after Holy Communion, we eventually stopped going to church altogether. After that, I threw myself into academics, fully embracing the morals and values of my secular curriculum. My greatest childhood dream was to be a physician. I'm not sure why, uh, because there were no other physicians in my family. At school, science was taught through the lens of evolution. We were given no other option. An enormous value was placed on reason. Our religion class essentially told us to be tolerant of others' faith, but ultimately to rely on logic, which I was happy to do because our school was international, a faith melting pot, and so you have to be careful of what you say. However, Catholicism did push my tolerance boundaries. I remember one particular friend dying young in a tragic accident. The family was devoutly Catholic. The priest told them that they should rejoice because God takes the ones he loves the most the earliest because he wants them in heaven with him. So they should see the loss of their child as a gift to God. And that was it for me. I thought, if this is the God of Christianity, I don't want to know him even if he does exist. And before I get stoned for what I'm saying, I have to make sure that I distinguish between Catholic people and Catholic theology. Some of the people I love most in this world, my flesh and blood, are Catholics. They are the most loving people I have ever met. But personally, the theology brought me to a breaking point. At 15, my life took a series of unexpected turns. Unfortunately, over the years, um, my parents' relationship had become very turbulent, and they decided to separate. In my final years of high school, with the added drama, you know, teenage drama, the situation just became a bit too much for me to handle. I was trying to be strong on the outside, but internally I could make no sense of the purpose of existence. I was heartbroken. Academically, I had lost steam, so the very thought of applying to medical school was just off the table. Frankly, I wasn't too interested in the idea of being surrounded by hurting people when I myself was just an emotional wreck. Instead, I reverted to the one thing that had always been my refuge, which was art. I have always been drawn to the fine arts, and um, I felt that that was something I should apply to university for. However, my parents, who had always stressed the importance of academia, asked me to consider art history instead, a slightly more ennobled form. The more I thought of it, the more the idea of hiding in academia appealed to me. So I applied for art history and was accepted at St. Andrews University in Scotland. Shortly before leaving Rome, my dad had left the house and my mother joined a new age group. So I often found myself tagging along to all sorts of events, from Reiki, Teta Healing, Reconnection, Pranic Healing, Astrology, Card Reading, you name it, I've probably tried it. The New Age taught that we were essentially spiritual beings having a human experience, and the goal was to learn various different techniques to unleash that all-knowing, all-wise being inside of you to find peace. It's funny now because the Bible does say that the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things, and who can know it? But at the time, this all seemed fascinating. And honestly, the people we met through the center were so outlandish and colorful that they were a breath of fresh air to me at that time. 
Despite trying out all sorts of things, however, there was no peace in our hearts and definitely no peace at home. Astrology was the one thing that captivated my imagination, partly because the symbolism drew my artistic attention. But other than that, I decided the New Age was not for me either. At 17, I moved to St. Andrews and was excited about, excited about starting this new chapter. I intended to lock myself up in the ivory tower of academia and had no intention of turning back. I was very fortunate because I made incredible friends and the four years in Scotland were very formative. I loved art history from the get-go. Humanities have always come naturally to me. And it was here, however, that I also met Protestant Christians for the first time in my life. They usually hang out in groups and I observe them from afar. I know it sounds creepy, but I promise I didn't stalk them. In class, I noticed that they made excellent comments. They were definitely smarter than the rest of us. Most of the art we studied was religious in nature, so I always appreciated their biblical insights. However, in our classrooms, the Bible was never used as a reputable source. On the contrary, it was often openly ridiculed by teachers. In my last two years, I met the teacher who eventually would become my dissertation supervisor. Her specialty in medieval art and illuminated manuscripts, and I flourished under her mentorship. I could increasingly see myself donning the suit of academia. Everything was going in that direction, were it not for a series of events that I will relate now that happened in my final year that would change my pursuits forever. The first event happened in one of my illuminated manuscript classes. We were analyzing a folio depicting a biblical scene, I forget which one. Our teacher took the opportunity to make a joking comment about the Bible story. The girl sitting in front of me, however, happened to be a Bible-believing Christian. She dared to interrupt the teacher to tell her, well, you know, I think you should be a bit more respectful because I believe the Bible to be an accurate historical document. Of course, this did not go down very well. The teacher proceeded to say something like, well, have I got news for you? And once again, as I had seen so many times before, the entire class proceeded to laugh. If this had been the only time I had seen this behavior, perhaps I wouldn't have thought anything of it. But this time was the time that broke the straw that broke the camel's back. I still didn't want to have anything to do with religion. However, it struck me, if we are in higher education to become intellectually refined people, then surely the truth does not need these measures to defend itself. The second most significant event happened while I was writing my dissertation. As I mentioned, astrology had captivated my imagination since high school, so I wrote my paper on astrological symbols in medieval books of prayer and medical manuscripts. I was looking at how the symbolism was eventually absorbed into early Christian iconography. As you can imagine, this is quite a niche subject, and I was having a bit of a hard time finding resources. One day, I randomly stumbled on a paper that had just recently been published by a PhD researcher, and I began to read. It was a page turner. I was flying through it until I reached a passage that stopped me in my tracks. The writer observed, it's interesting that so much of astrological symbolism crept into early Christian art, considering that the second commandment of the Bible is thou shalt not make any graven images. I almost fell out of my chair. I thought back to that list of 10 commandments I had received as a child at seven. And for some reason, I didn't remember this one being on there. I pulled up Google and thought to myself, wait, this doesn't make any sense. 
there are two separate Ten Commandments? I was perplexed. At this point, I began to have some burning questions. Why did I not know about this commandment? Why was Christianity so openly attacked at university? And if these graven images were so dangerous, should I really be dedicating my life to studying them in art history? Meanwhile, I was working on staying on after my MA to publish a book. So I met with one of my professors who started our conversation by asking me a question that initially threw me off. So what is your big take-home lesson from these last four years of education? I surprised myself by answering, well, that Christianity is the root of all evil. The response I received was even more surprising. Well, that is exactly what we want you to understand. For some reason, I couldn't shake the feeling that the mask had been ripped off the face of my secular education, and what lurked behind it didn't seem too pretty to me. I cannot explain how it feels to have worked so long to accomplish a goal and suddenly feel like the carpet is being pulled out from under your feet. The goal of being an academic was suddenly within reach, and now it just felt so anticlimactic. I felt like I had been cheated for so long. In my last few months at university, I took a step back to think about all these questions in my mind. I also thought about my family, the unresolved issues at home. My life, which looked accomplished and privileged on the outside, felt as though it really didn't belong to me at all. On the inside, I felt hollow. I wondered how Christianity fit into all of this. So I did the unthinkable. I declined the offer to stay on in academia and decided to go back home. Everyone thought I had finally lost my mind, and part of me wondered if they weren't right. <laughs> so after graduation in May 2012, I moved back to Rome. There was no plan A, no plan B. I had no idea what I was going to do. But when in Rome, do as the Romans, I enrolled in a fashion program and started working with a local seamstress. I was also doing a lot of painting and drawing on the side, and I was kind of just relishing the artistic freedom. Um, while I had been at university, my mother had been actively researching all sorts of alternative media channels online. I truly admired the countless hours of research that she spent trying to figure out why the world was in the mess that it was in. Some of what she had read and listened to over the years was very interesting. Other aspects of her research had led her down the most incredible rabbit holes, from people who believe that shape-shifting reptilians rule the world to others who believe in aliens. Some of these stories were, for lack of a better word, hilarious. By the time I was wrapping up my degree, I think the YouTube algorithm had decided that she might also like to hear about Bible prophecy. So Professor Walter Weith's Total Onslaught series popped up on her recommended videos list. She began to watch it, and eventually one day she said, you know, you've done art history, and this gentleman talks about archaeology and the New Age. I think you might be interested in what he has to say. That weekend, I took my computer up to my room and began to listen, and my mind was blown away. These videos answered so many of the questions that had accumulated in my head over the last year. Bible prophecy, Daniel, Revelation were definitely the missing pieces of the jigsaw. After years of seeking for truth in every way imaginable, my mother and I became very convicted that Bible prophecy was real. It just connected all the dots. And after spending most of that summer listening to sermons, we looked at each other and said, that's it. We have to throw all these books out. And so we did. 
heaps and heaps of self-help, new age books just consigned to the trash. We didn't even think of donating them because we thought they would do more damage to their recipients than anything else. From that moment on, we binge watched anything we could find on YouTube that was related to Bible prophecy. Just two ladies huddled over a computer in a kitchen in Rome, hooked. For so many years, we had been like those people described in Daniel 12, running to and fro for knowledge. And finally, the Holy Spirit was revealing God's greatness to us through biblical prophecy. I could trace his hand through all of Earth's history, and he gained my respect. All these years, I thought I'd had God all figured out. I realized I actually didn't know anything about him. I had to reconsider this God of the Bible. We were now in 2013. In light of the new information I was learning, I began to feel out of place in the fashion world and wasn't too sure what I should do in life. Once again, a series of very unexpected events happened that year, which would bring about monumental changes that none of us could foresee. First, that summer we received a call from my mother's family in Ireland to tell us that her brother, my uncle, had suddenly passed away. The funeral in Dublin followed shortly after that. My uncle had been the one taking care of my grandmother a few years before his death. And after the trip to Ireland, my mother realized that my grandmother was going to need our urgent attention. I took a bit of a step back from fashion to help her going to and fro from Ireland. Around this time, friends of mine from St. Andrews were also getting married in Edinburgh. I flew to Scotland for the weekend. The wedding was on a Saturday afternoon, and in the morning I decided to pay a visit to the local Seventh-day Adventist church. There were four people in the church that day, and I wonder what they must have thought when they saw me. In leaving, I asked if they had any literature to share with me. The only Adventist book I knew of was The Great Controversy. However, they did give me a book of Patriarchs and Prophets instead. I took it back to Rome with me, and the following week I cracked it open. The first sentence reeled me in. God is love. His nature, his law is love. It ever was. It always shall be. I was enraptured by the story of the origin of sin. How is it possible that evil was born in the heart of a perfect angel in a perfect heaven? And all those Old Testament stories which had piqued my curiosity throughout my study of art history came alive. They were not just a random bunch of meaningless fables. I saw myself in each of the characters in different ways, each so relatable, each so loved by God and treated with such tenderness by him. I began to see that my childhood memories of religion, which had painted my picture of God, had created a very distorted image of him. I was happy to discover that his actual image was very different from the one I had been cherishing all those years. He wasn't too busy or angry to need an intercessor, for me. He wasn't demanding, and he didn't want to steal children from their parents. All those years, I had fled for him are best illustrated by a verse from a poem entitled The Hound of Heaven, Thou dravest love from thee who dravest me. At seven, I stood before the priest at confession and felt guilty, wondering what I had done to fall so short of God's glory that Jesus wouldn't hear me and the priest had to forgive me. But now, I was face to face with God's goodness, and for the first time, I understood that, yes, before him, I truly was nothing. As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, one of the greatest blessings that can occur to us is to be made to think little of ourselves. After finishing this book, I also understood that the greatest work God was going to have to do in my life was healing my heart. 
You see, I had already understood that God was mighty and had foretold events of history and prophecy, but now it dawned on me that more than anything, God wanted to be the sovereign of my heart. Thankfully, I accepted that this was not only a mighty God who I could respect and trust, but most importantly, one that I could love and serve. I also knew I had to become a Seventh-day Adventist. As these truths settled in, my heart changed, and so did the way I related to circumstances in my life. The family visits to Dublin became more peaceful, and the way I related to others changed drastically. Finally, the semblance of peace seemed to return to our family, and we began to experience healing. I decided to become more involved in helping my mother take care of my grandmother. We agreed that I would move to Ireland to be closer to her. So I packed my boxes and sent them off. However, a week or so before flying out, my grandmother was taken to the hospital, and this time was to be the last. She passed away before I got there. This time, instead of running away from pain, as I had done in my teenage years, I found that stepping into pain and being around my loved ones who were also processing grief and sadness was very healing. My fears of hurting and failure melted away, and I grew closer to my family. Perhaps stepping into pain and caring for those who were also experiencing it was its best antidote. With all my belongings now in cardboard boxes in Dublin, I figured I should stay. I had come to love the city and its inhabitants. Perhaps I'm biased, but I genuinely think that Irish people could charm the birds out of the trees. Once the funeral and post-funeral events died down, I decided it was time to start attending a church. I googled where the closest Adventist church was and happily discovered one conveniently located 15 minutes from my house. One Sabbath in September, my mother and I got ready to go to church. We arrived early and we were introduced to the very lovely Pastor Gavin Anthony and Pastor Mark Finley, who had just arrived for his evangelistic tour of Ireland. And if that isn't God working in Dublin, I don't know what is. Pastor Finley and Teeny have been such a blessing to me in my spiritual journey. They are two of the most genuinely loving, committed Christians I have had the privilege to meet, and I'm always encouraged to see them. So I'm delighted they're here this weekend. Um, after church that day, they invited my mom and myself to keep attending their seminars, which were also conveniently located five minutes down the road from our house. I believe it was at the end of one of his sermons at church that Elder Finley made an appeal for baptism. Um, both my mother and myself stood up. On the final night, September 27th, Elder Mark introduced us to a group of his American friends, most of whom are here tonight. And um, I remember they all had very warm, smiling faces. <laughs> the rest of the details of the evening are foggy to me. I think I had just gotten used to exchanging cards with everyone at the time I was job hunting, so I thought it was just exchanging pleasantries, and I kind of forgot all about it. So you can imagine my surprise when the following week, as I was sitting in my room in Dublin, I received an email from Dr. Andy Hunsaker. Hi, Georgia. If you can't place me, this is one of the twins you met in Ireland. I would like to send you the Great Controversy series. This is an Adventist must-have. I only have your email and phone. Could you send me your mailing address? And just like that, the two of us became instant pen pals. My early experience in the church was marked by exponential learning. I found, I found everything I was learning so riveting, and I was on fire for more. It was very early on in my experience that I also became strongly convicted that I should be a missionary. I'm not sure why, and I'm not quite sure how to explain some of the burdens God puts on our heart. I'm excited to hear all about that in heaven. But I remember telling Andy about this. 
I received an immediate answer from her saying that she and Bob thought it would be a good idea if I did a Bible worker program in the US. It floored me that these people who I barely knew were willing to offer that. I felt convicted to go. Andy encouraged me to think and pray about it. She referred me to Proverbs 3.5, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge God and he will direct your paths. But honestly, at the, time, at the time, I'm sad to say my prayer life was pretty much inexistent. I was more of an information sponge. So I didn't pray about it. And I ended up doing just the opposite of what Proverbs 3.5 says. I spoke to unconverted family and friends about it, and they all warned me against it. A Bible worker program? After an MA, are you serious? Please, not another of your crazy moves. I toyed with the idea and was going back and forth on it. Eventually, the day-to-day -day life just settled in. After all, I was surrounded by comforts, was fully independent with my own home, car, job, etc. For the first time in a while, my life was finally starting to look stable, um, and I forgot about the idea of becoming a missionary. I have learned the hard way that it can be dangerous to shut out conviction, because very soon my Christian journey became extremely turbulent. Within a short time of being in the church, I met and had started dating a nice Adventist. I have discovered that problems can also come shaped in the unsuspecting form of nice, conservative, multi-generational SDA boyfriends. Unfortunately, this relationship was of no use to either of our spiritual lives. As mentioned, I had grown up in a very secular environment, and I also found that the closer I was trying to get to God, the more I began to see so many things in my life that were at odds with my newfound beliefs. I would promise God, that I would not do things that were offensive to him, but to my horror, I found that I was incapable of keeping those promises. Whenever I would do something wrong, I would be overwhelmed with guilt and shame and became very stuck in many vicious cycles of sinning and repenting. I can fully relate to Romans 7.24 because many times I cried out to God, save me from the body of this death. It is a testament to God's greatness that I can talk about this pretty relaxed today because at the time I began to despair. I delayed my baptism for an inordinate amount of time, thinking that I had to make myself right before God before I could be worthy of it. By God's grace, I eventually decided to get ready or not, it was time to fulfill that commitment. And though I still didn't feel worthy, I was baptized on August 15th, 2015, the most important day of my life so far, and the best decision I have ever made. But I do stand before you with battle wounds because the spiritual battle was no joke. As Andy mentioned in that quote from Luke 22, when we take steps to get closer to Jesus, Satan desires to sift us as wheat. Thankfully, Jesus prays for us. And thankfully, there were also others praying for me. Andy was continually touching base with me and encouraging me with the word. Her invitations to the US kept coming to visit GYC, ASI but I was like the rock of Gibraltar and felt unable to move. I kept looking at my failures in my spiritual life and the thought that every time I let God down was the last time I had gone too far was just always there lurking in the corner. But I wrestled with the Lord and I would not let him go. Thankfully, he is so great that he used these circumstances to direct my paths despite my continual ups and downs. He worked very powerfully through my church community in Dublin. They were a fantastic church family to me. Even though they didn't know all of my internal struggles, they wrapped their arms of love around me and encouraged me to become more actively involved in church activities. I just have to add a side note here of how much I love our church. 
I hope to see Jesus return in my lifetime, but if he doesn't, this is the church I'm dying in. My most significant breakthrough at this time occurred as I began to volunteer at the church's health center of influence. By this time, I had befriended the incredible team of lady physicians and health professionals who ran the center. They got me involved in the community depression recovery program, cooking classes, and anything else that was happening, really. I soon found that I loved meeting people who visited the Kushla Outreach Center from the local community. I especially loved participating in group discussions about depression, anxiety, and addictions. These discussions were so raw and real and relatable, and in some ways, I enjoyed them even more than our church discussions on Sabbath morning. I began to realize that there were many different ways people cope with unaddressed guilt and shame that come as a result of sin. You can throw yourself into good works in the hope that by being able to point to your righteousness, God will overlook the other stuff. You can hide your sin from the rest of the world and continue practicing it covertly. Or you can get stuck, as I was, in cycles of sinning and repenting and keep asking God for forgiveness to cover your sins. But it dawned on me that there was no real freedom in any of these options. At the center, I received a copy of the Ministry of Healing, which became the next most crucial milestone in my journey. My favorite chapter in that book is called Save to Serve. In particular, one quote cut right through me. Every true disciple is born into the kingdom a missionary. God reminded me of that calling he had placed on my heart to be a missionary. As I read more of Jesus' healing ministry, I reflected on those stories of personal tragedy that had touched my family over the past couple of years. I mentioned my grandmother and uncle, but shortly after, I also lost a good friend to lung cancer and my most beloved aunt to colon cancer. In their pain and sorrow, I had noticed that they were open to hearing about God, and I meditated on what a privilege it is for physicians and health practitioners of all walks to be able to introduce patients to the great physician during these times of agony. To empower them and improve their autonomy with thoughts of a God who cares about them. On top of that, I was passionate about the work being done at our church's outreach center. I saw the right arm of the gospel And now God placed it very clearly on my heart that the best way I could be an effective missionary was to retrain in a health-related profession. And he did something I would never imagine. He rekindled my childhood dream of being a physician. At this time, I also stumbled upon some writings about the 1888 message, Righteousness by Faith. I felt that it might be the answer to some of the problems that I was facing in my spiritual life. My time volunteering in our outreach programs also made me realize that I needed to talk to someone about my spiritual struggles. I needed a sort of accountability partner, and I wanted someone who had a more robust mind than I did, someone who was a student of the word and had some degrees of separation from my church. I couldn't think of anyone else but Andy, the lady on the other side of the ocean who had somehow become my closest friend. I explained what was going on in my life and how I felt that God was no longer able to hear me because I was incapable of being a good Christian. I also asked her if she knew more about this 1888 message. Her answer was immediate. 
As Andy always does, she pointed me directly to the gospel and reminded me of many promises that say that God will never abandon us. She assured me by saying, Bob, her husband, who you met, and I are still here for you and love you. On top of that, she knew about 1888 <laughs> and had spent the last 20 years studying it. And her husband is, in fact, the, the currently the 1888 Message Study Committee president. She sent me a few books on the topic. I read them, and they revived my spiritual life. And here's why. The message of righteousness by faith forced me to push everything else that I was studying aside and zoom in on one central figure, Jesus. Amen. It's funny how even with spending so much time in the word, it's easy to miss the forest for the trees. I went back to the root of the great controversy. Is God genuinely selfless? I grappled with the concept of the judgment, not so much the judgment on my pathetic little life, but a judgment on God's character, an accusation hurtled against him. Is his love really so great that it can change a life? I poured over passages that explained what was in the heart of God before time began. I studied the link of unbroken love, uniting all the members of the Godhead, who, by the way, were all on the same page concerning my redemption. It's not like Jesus had to sacrifice himself to appease God. If God the Father had come down, we would have seen the same exact thing. I found myself often meditating on the closing scenes and spent much time in the chapter Gethsemane in Desire of Ages. Here, the sin of the world is being transferred onto the spotless Lamb of God. He fears the weight of sin is so great that it will separate him forever from the love of the Father. He is tempted, tempted to leave man, to suffer the consequences of sin. And yet he prays, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I thought of the angel coming to strengthen Jesus, reminding him of the Father's love, and pointing him to a time when the redeemed of all ages will be joined together as a family in heaven as a result of his selfless decision. Amen. And with this love, with this thought of love and companionship with the saved human race, Jesus' mind is made up. Yes. He will save man at all costs to himself. Yes. And he goes to the cross with the joy of this reality set before him, despising the shame. At the foot of the cross, we understand what true love looks like. True love is other-centered and involves a sacrifice. True love also doesn't enable us, allowing us to recklessly continue in our course of sin. Jesus came to save man from sin, we are told, not in it. Love clearly points out what has to go from our lives, but provides the motivation of reclaiming and freeing us from pain. As I looked at my life, I put it into perspective once again. I realized that I was miserable by doing things my way, stuck in these cycles of sinning and repenting. I was the one who felt guilty, unsafe, ultimately unloved. And the pain I was feeling is what broke God's heart. The penny dropped. That is the reason sin is so offensive to God, not because he's so sensitive that our bad choices offend him, but because they hurt us and we're the objects of his infinite affection. We are told that one subject will swallow up all others at the end, and that is Christ and him crucified. Romans 2.4 says that it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance, not mere outward obedience and assent to truth, but a genuine inward heart transformation. By spending intentional time 
Just focusing on God's love without any other distractions, my heart melted again. I finally understood that repentance was not something I could manufacture, but was the result of intelligently contemplating God's selfless love. This is a God who did not consider heaven a place worthy of being in without me in it, without you in it. The word tells us that it is only by love that love is awakened. After a year of wrestling with God, I finally had an experiential assurance of salvation and my heart burned within me. I couldn't delay my calling any longer. I spoke to Andy about this rekindled childhood dream of becoming a physician. Growing up, nobody in my family understood this, but now it seems like all of my adopted family are physicians. (laughs) I explained that I felt impressed to do medical missionary work and that I was considering schools in Ireland, but she referred me to a small school in Northern California Weimar College. It was a place she had already mentioned to me in our extensive communication, but she asked if I wouldn't at least check it out. I looked at the website and thought, what? This place? (laughs) This place out in the boonies? (laughs) I'm so sorry. So far from home, living in a dorm, sharing a bathroom, and surrounded by freshmen? I don't think so. Add to this a storm of self-doubt. How can a humanities girl go back to the sciences and so late in the game? Impossible. Lord, I'm deluded. But the thought of Weimar and pre-med kept haunting me. And now I finally understood Proverbs 3, 5. I was determined not to lean on my understanding again. Sometimes when God is doing a work in us, it is hard to tell where it will go. I felt like God was telling me, you might not see it. Your friends and family might not see it but I see the end from the beginning. Will you trust me? So in September 2016, I flew out to California. I arrived in Weimar at some ungodly hour of the night and was too jet lagged to sleep. I remember a sense of total peace washing over me as soon as I set foot on campus. 4 a.m. found me in the kitchen at the inn brewing some herbal tea. I looked out the window and saw groups of people jogging around the loop and thought, Where have I landed? (laughs) The following day, I was given a tour of the campus. I met several staff and students and instantly fell in love with the place. When I returned to Ireland, it was clear to me what I had to do. As they say, the final movements are rapid ones. I submitted my application to Weimar, finally broke off this relationship that was going nowhere, handed in my resignation, packed up my belongings, said goodbye to family and friends and moved to California in January 2017. During my layover in JFK, I opened my chemistry textbook and feared for my life because it honestly looked like ancient Aramaic. (laughs) But God was greater than the textbook, and not only did he lead me successfully through all my classes at Weimar, but my my years there were the best three years of my life so far. When the time to apply to medical school came, I was truly unsure whether or not to apply to Loma Linda. After all, it is still very far from home, so expensive compared to Europe, and wasn't Europe a neglected mission field? I strongly debated going back home to study. However, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, if I didn't give Loma Linda a chance, the one SDA medical school that espoused my desire to be a Christian missionary doctor and incorporated Christian physician formation into the curriculum, if I didn't at least try, I really wouldn't be letting God decide for me. 
I thought to Andy's example, a dedicated Christian physician who, despite the fact that she spends her days in the dark as a radiologist, was still able to connect me so powerfully to the great physician. So I prayed, Lord, please show me beyond a shadow of the doubt if this is really where you want me to study. And let me tell you, God knows how to answer prayer. My interview, on January, my interview was on January 27th of this year. Of the many theological questions I was asked in my second, most decisive interview, one stands out in particular. In your application, you mentioned that you are jealous about vindicating God's character. Why? If God is God, why does he need us to defend his character? I explained my story, how an incorrect picture of God had put me at enmity with him for so long, wrecking so much sorrow and damage along the way. All of this, the result of wrong theology. I explained that since learning more about God's true character, I found myself in the same predicament described by Paul in Romans 6, a slave to the gospel. I wouldn't even be considering applying to medical school if he hadn't changed my heart and done a work that was so great that I wasn't desperate to share that with others through medical missionary work. At the end of our long, I believe, divinely appointed conversation, my interviewer said, I think I may have said this only once before in all my years of interviewing, but you're in. I took that as my answer beyond a shadow of a doubt. On February 13th, I received my official call of acceptance from Loma Linda, God's early Valentine's present for me. Over the last month, as I prayed to God to show me what to share with you this evening, my mind was often taken back to Isaiah 61. This chapter has always been near to my heart, and I believe it's very near to Jesus' heart too because he used it, as we know, to kickstart his ministry. We are all familiar with it. It opens by saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. I would submit to you that the captivity spoken of here is not just a literal prison. From experience, I know that there is no prison so dark, so terrifying and miserable, as the prison of untrue thoughts and poor choices that come from having a distorted picture of who God is. As I speak, many people in our world, even in our church, suffer because of the wrong idea they have of what's in the skies. I genuinely believe that we are at a time in Earth's history where the rocks will soon cry out. Like my mother and myself, who were frantically looking for answers, running to and fro for knowledge, I fully expect to see many people who are not currently of our faith start to pour into our churches the same way we did five years ago. And when they do, are our hearts ready for them? Has the gospel changed our hearts that we will be able to be their friends through the struggles that they will face? Or will we waste those introductions? During these times, I think it is easy for us at Adventists to press the urgency of time as a reason to become followers of Christ. We are told, however, that this savors of selfishness because Jesus is attractive. Does that mean that a Christian walk is always going to be perfect? I certainly hope that you don't think that I'm talking to you as though I were some completed artwork under museum glass because nothing could be further from the truth. I have had to come crying at the foot of the cross many times. 
I also have more challenges now than I have ever had in my entire life. I've started medical school, and it's only uphill from here. I still wait for the phone call to say that they found out I'm a fraud pretty much every day. But it's okay. I think we're all suffering imposter syndrome at this stage. We are not promised that the walk will be easy. However, if like the disciples in the upper room, we would contemplate on God's life, allowing each scene to pass before us, meditating on his pure and holy life, I believe that we too will find no toil too hard, no sacrifice too great, if only we could bear witness in our lives to the loveliness of Christ's character. Then faith, a heartfelt appreciation for Jesus, would be just the natural consequence. It's not something that has to be conjured up, but grows in proportion to our understanding of how much he was willing to give up for us. Then our faith would be more steadfast, inspiring us to take God at his word like a child does, and relying on that word alone to accomplish what it has promised to do. We have nothing to fear for the future, we are told, lest we forget the ways he has led in the past. There is a God in heaven who remembers the childhood dreams we let fall by the wayside, a high priest who is touched by the feeling of our infirmities, having in all things been tempted as we are. Are we ready to take a chance, to clear all the distractions, and maybe for the first time, really contemplate the love of Christ in going to Gethsemane and Calvary for us? Will we allow him into those areas of our life that are broken and perhaps we might think irredeemable? And instead of allowing our mistakes to define us, will we find a new identity in Christ as we meditate on the infinite price we have been purchased at? There is a God in heaven who wants to be that friend who sticks closer than a brother. Will we let him be our best friend? Thank you, Georgia. Were you inspired tonight by Georgia's testimony? I know I was. And to think in the divine drama of destiny that God has picked out this young lady, brought up in Rome, led to Ireland, and then led now to Weimar, and then on to Loma Linda to become a medical missionary, and think of that introduction Amen. that we made back there in 2014 in September in the Ballsbridge Hotel. God works in amazing ways, doesn't he? Let's pray and thank him for the way he has led Georgia and the way he has led Andy to mentor Georgia. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, how we thank you with all of our hearts that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the earth to seek those who are longing for you. We know that you are the good shepherd that seeks out your lost sheep, that before we ever take one step toward you, you have taken a step toward us. Amen. Before we ever have faith that can be manifest you have placed that desire in our hearts. And so, Father, we just want to thank you for the way you've led Georgia. We want to thank you for the potential that she has in, as a medical missionary for you. We know that she has an amazing destiny. And I pray, too, for those tonight watching 3ABN. I pray for those that may be seeking truth. Touch their hearts right now convict them of decisions they need to make 
and lead them, I pray thee, to make an eternal decision to find that peace and joy that only comes from Jesus and only comes from following his truth. And I pray for each medical student, guide them, direct them, place within their hearts a desire to use the training and the expertise they have in service for you. And I pray for those who may desire to be mentors to others. Father, help them take that initiative when they are introduced to medical students or others whom they can make a real difference in their lives. And we thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.